You're listening to MHD Off the Record South LA Highlights, where I, Siobhan Taylor, speak with local organizations, small businesses, and individuals doing amazing work in South LA. Here, we uplift and highlight their work while keeping you informed of the resources available in our community. On this episode, we speak with Brittany Frazier, founder and president of Noah's Foundation, Inc., an organized movement advocating for the social and economic disparities of families and individuals experiencing poverty and homelessness. Their focus is to provide transitional and affordable housing, intensive homelessness services, direct case management, and economical resources to society's most vulnerable. Their vision is to see families with their own safe home, individuals obtaining good and sustainable careers, and healthy children with access to quality education and the ability to pursue their dreams, however big they may be. Enjoy the show. So welcome, Brittany Frazier. Hi. It's great to have you. I'm glad we were able to pin you down because you stay busy. You in the field. I know. It's a lot. It's definitely a lot of work. Well, I'm very happy you're doing this work. And you have a very interesting story about how you even started mm-hmm. um, Noah's Foundation. So let's start there. Let's start about. Let's start with your story. How did you even begin Noah's Foundation? Um, I started Noah's Foundation in the middle of the pandemic, wherein most people told me it was very risky to even start transitional housing. But I am a surviving domestic violence victim, and I was also pregnant and homeless sleeping in my car. Um, and just trying to figure it out of what I was going to do with my life. I did house myself um, shortly before my baby came. And once my son came, whose name is Noah, by the way, um, I went back into homelessness um, because we lost that apartment. And I went to go stay with a family member. And eventually family members get tired of you staying with them and you're back on the streets and you're just trying to figure it out. So um for the last time, I was able to pull it together and told myself, like, this is never happening again because now Noah is getting bigger and I don't want this for him. And I did. And my life took off from there. Um, and I said, when I figure out how to get on my feet, I'm going to come back and I'm going to help other people. And I went back to school. I went back to El Camino. I had an amazing gang worker named Christopher Clark who helped me enroll in school. He connected me with all these different programs and he helped me get an internship with St. Joseph Center. And while I was at St. Joseph Center, I saw kind of, I would say, like how broken the system is with homeless services when you are like trying to get help and you kind of have to like maneuver your way through. And um, I'm a big advocate for those people. (laughs) What are some of the things that you noticed were broken right away? Um, Like the budget frequently being misallocated and running out of funds where we couldn't support our rapid rehousing clients and not being able to pay their rent. So then we were told, like, you will have to call your caseload and tell them that we can't pay their rent this month or we can't, you know, like they kind of have to figure it out and stuff. So I never knew if this is like an agency problem, if this is like a, a measure age problem or is this just how it works. And, you know, with these different budgets and you have to be very strategic of like where this money's going. So let's let's slow down for a second because you're using terms that I think are known for people who are working in that yeah. in those services. So let's back so, up a little bit. So when you say rapid rehousing, mm-hmm. for people who don't know what that is, can you explain what that program is? Rapid rehousing, um, and I have seen across different agencies, it can look very different. But rapid rehousing has the word rapid in it. So with the housing first approach, it rapid rehousing allows a person to come in, um, get their assessment, see what they need, but the goal is to house them first. So finding a landlord or someone who will accept third-party checks and 
with the rapid rehousing, like their rent, their first month and their security deposit is supposed to be paid for. And then they may get three months of rent paid for 100% at 100%. And then the next three months, maybe the agency pays 75% and then the client is responsible for paying the other 25. And then it goes down to 50% and it is it goes all that way for about up to a year when at that point the client is expected to cover their own rent in which... So it slowly basically yeah. declines the amount that they're covering to make sure that the person who's receiving services is in a mm-hmm. position to now cover their own rent. Yes. So you're saying that at some point those funds dried up in the program that you were that you knew about yes and they were trying to figure out what we're going to do we had all these clients and we're like they're moving funds now that i am the executive director of my agency i get it because even with our grants and stuff that we have sometimes we have to make adjustments to the budget and move money from this budget and put it somewhere else but at that time as a new case manager i did not understand that Mm. it did not make sense to me and i'm just like well why do we keep running out of funds you know, for this to happen. And now we have to call people and then they panic. And it was just a lot, you know? So you saw it from both ends. You saw it on one side as being someone who was receiving services. And then you also saw it on the other side as a person who was implementing services. And you can see how it's difficult on both sides. Yes. I would actually say like I saw it on three sides, like being the person as the case manager and now being the executive director of my own agency and also knowing what it's like to be a client Mm. and how hard it was to get that kind of help. So now I see it from like these different aspects and it's tough. It is very, very tough. And the housing first approach is great, which means like you don't look at a person's barriers, their race, their religion, anything. The goal is to house them first. I understand that approach. I don't think that approach should be a one size fits all. Mm-hmm. I am here at Noah's Foundation. Like what we do is we we have like a more holistic approach where it's like I am seeking to help those who are already on a mission to help themselves. What inspired you to name the organization after your son? Um, my son is my reason. I don't think had I had my son, I probably would still be in the streets. I probably would really be jacked up. And I knew what it felt like to have that new opportunity. So NOAA is actually an acronym for New Opportunity and Hope. And I found my new opportunity and hope through my son and making sure that I was able to like come back and help other moms. Um, My first home was for moms. And then I started getting calls from families who didn't want to separate. Most transitional living programs are women and children in one home. And then the other is for men and they have to separate. Well, I believe that families should be able to stick together, and that's how we see them thrive. That's how we see a bigger impact. So then my second home was, we're going to keep these families together, and now I have families that live in the same space. And then I started to get calls from prison. Hey, I'm getting out. (laughs) I don't have anywhere to go. And that's when I'm like, okay, reentry is a thing. Like, now we need a home for that. Now I'm getting calls from a lot of former foster youth. I've aged out. I don't have anywhere to go. These people who were paid to love me my whole life are no longer going to help me. Now we have a home for that. So like it just keeps going and there's always a need. So you're seeing all these different demographics that are being impacted by the housing crisis that we have now. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's interesting because even before there was a so-called housing, I think we've always had housing issues. Yes. But even before that, these particular groups were always impacted by 
um, issues around housing. Yes. People who are coming out of, you and know. And it was a wake up call for me because I didn't know that until I lived really? it. Really? Until I experienced it. Until I went through it, I didn't know that this was a thing. I mean, growing up, and I'm born and raised in South L.A., I am a Crenshaw District baby. And I remember seeing homeless people, but, like, I didn't know. What led to that? No, I didn't. Or um, one of the stigmas a lot of people have is, like, it's drugs or it's mental health. But you have to look at a person's story before the drugs and what caused the mental health, you know? Oh, I love that. Talk to us about that. Well, what you learned in, um, in your journey. One of the things that I've learned, because now I'm not afraid of the unhoused, so I actually don't call them homeless anymore. I call them the unhoused. Wait, you're saying, you say so much in mm -hmm. such a short period. The fear. Yeah. Let's let's touch on that, and then, then let's get to that other question. Why was there fear? Um, and why do you believe there's fear? Because you're not the only person who's, who felt that. Yeah. So why you was know there what? fear? I don't know. I think we assume that homeless are, like, very violent and mean and mental health and then before this was a kaiser on santa rosalie and buckingham because i grew up on aborn which is going into the what we call it the jungles that whole street was nothing but liquor stores small businesses hair shops barber shops so to see a kaiser there is crazy to me <laughs> with growing up there so i just remember going into that store there and there would always be homeless people outside you know i see them with their cigarettes or asking for money they would always have beers and stuff and not to say that that hasn't changed. It still exists. But now with what I do, I see them as human beings and not as that person that's drunk outside and stuff. I'm not intimidated by them anymore. I'll walk up with them, sit there and have a conversation. And So in your, in your time in mm -hmm. doing this work, also having had the experience that you had um, and being unhoused, you've been able to now humanize yes. the people that you see. So let's, and then getting back to my other question, what would what have you learned along this journey has led to un people becoming unhoused? Generational curses. Mm. Generational I call it generational curses. trauma, but I'm yeah. curious to see. I, I, and I'm sure it's the same language. Because, you know, black people are leading homelessness. Right. We're leading, right? I think so, we're 35 to 40 percent of the homeless population while only being 8 percent of the population of the city. Yeah. One thing I would say is I wish black families would stop kicking their kids out. Mm. And I love my mom dearly. And throughout the years, I've been able to repair that relationship with my mom. But I'm a product of that. And it set me up for failure. And that's also how I ended up in homelessness. Because when I turned 18, it's like, pay rent, get out, you got to go. And no, that didn't, that didn't help me. It actually set me back. So now, like seeing that, I remember throughout the pandemic, and there was a guy who kept sleeping in my parking spot. The manager hated it. It didn't bother me, though. I would take him soup outside. I would take him snacks and hygiene kits. And one day I finally just sat and talked to him and said, how did this happen to you? Because I'm curious. He told me throughout the pandemic um, his mother got sick and something happened with like the taxes or something on the home. They lost the house and eventually he had to get out of the house. And he was like, I wasn't prepared for that. And he was like, I still get his, he still gets his veterans benefits, which I thought was even crazier because this man served in Vietnam War and I was in 1967. And you mean to tell me we're not helping our veterans right. and he didn't have anywhere to go. Now he's on the streets. Right. What's interesting about what you're saying is that we don't often even think to ask people how mm -hmm. they got to where they are. And that's a big thing in, in black families you know how many of us ended up in situations because big mama died and that was like the top of the tree of the family and then when she's gone 
then that's it. You know, my grandmother kept all of us together. My grandmother passed away in 2020. I haven't seen a family reunion since. I wouldn't be able to tell you where half of my cousins are. Mm. So You know, I actually did a show um, a few years ago around um, the unhoused in Los Angeles. And when I did an interview, that was one of the stories I had heard was that someone had, um, this man had actually lost his apartment because the apartment was in his mother's name. Mother passed mm-hmm. away. And he couldn't keep up with the, he was unemployed at the time because of um, disability, he was disabled. And his mother had passed away, couldn't keep the apartment. And that's how it became um, unhoused. Mm -hmm. I'm using the term unhoused because that's what you've been using. So I want to use that terminology too, and I think it's accurate. Um, He became unhoused. And for years, he he was unable to um, secure any place to live. And when you dug even deeper into his story, we find out that the reason why his family didn't even have housing, um, own a home, is because of housing discrimination. Yeah. They were unable to secure a home loan various for various reasons. And we don't even think about that, how redlining impacts mm-hmm. the the a history of, of being unhoused in the, in the black, I'm sorry, for black families, right? Mm-hmm. We don't even talk about just being able to secure a loan, um, credit issues, and all these things that impact the homelessness in yes. our communities. And it's, it's not decreasing. Mm-hmm. I don't care how many homeless counts we do. It's not decreasing. It's going up. Mm-hmm. I don't even think we are at the peak of how bad it's about to get. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I don't think, if you think this is bad, Wait until you see next next year. I think it's definitely going to get much worse. That definitely increases your workload. It does. It definitely. Our our workload is <laughs> increased now. Um, and housing can be very tough because not only am I on this mission to like permanently house people and help them, but then in between that process, they've experienced so much. So then it's also like a lot of healing that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that when opening up these homes, because I'm not a psychologist, you know, I barely finished school. Like I didn't, I didn't know that it was going to come with all this and it happens. And unfortunately, again, it goes back to our mission is to hold on to those who are already seeking to help themselves because we have that mission, but we also have criteria that would allow you to be discharged Mm. and if you break a rule or if you do something or if you put other people in danger or if you have men in the property and this is a house with all women and domestic violence like I have to terminate you and it never makes me feel good to know that I brought you here to help you but then you did something that didn't help yourself and probably made it worse for everybody else and now I have to ask you to leave because now you have to think about the safety of the others in the space. Yes. There's lots to consider there. Mm -hmm. Um, And you have how many sites now? We have three sites, 10 homes. 10 homes. Wow. And what year did you begin? June 2020. You just started. Wait, today's our birthday. What? Yeah. Happy birthday. Because we started in operations (laughs) in June 2020. And then, yeah, the first home opened on the 27th. Well, so today's three years. This is your anniversary. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're spending it here with us. Yeah, and I'm glad we can highlight you. Oh, I'm wow. glad we can highlight you on your birthday. Yes. That is beautiful. I didn't realize that until you said something. And I was like, Wait a minute. <laughs> yep. Well, that's great. So just merely three years later, mm-hmm. you've already accomplished so much. And you've helped how many families? Over 500. Over 500 families. And so once they're um, in your in your location, in one of your sites, you're able to support them in getting permanent housing? Yes, um, which is, that's the hardest part. Because this, you have to make two and a half times and you have to have like this really high credit score. Um, realistically, 
no one has that. And if they did, they probably wouldn't be in transitional housing. Right. So the permanent housing part is very, very difficult. I've had families for as short as three months and I've had families for as long as two years because things just keep happening. Um, I don't even know if we have really found a solution to that yet. It's just it's getting worse now. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what we're going to do about it because landlords have a lot of rights. And then landlords also feel like tenants have a lot of rights. And mm-hmm. it's like us versus them. Mm-hmm. So even if I say we're able to pay their rent, we'll pay their security deposit. We offer case management. We'll check in on clients in between and make sure they're not damaging your property. Landlords are like, no, because they've either been burned by like Section 8 or other agencies or um, they've gotten clients before who just didn't do what they were supposed to do. And it kind of just burned a bridge for us to maintain mm-hmm. those relationships. So so it sounds like you take your work very seriously and you want to make sure that you maintain healthy relationships, even with landlords. Yes. So that's very important. Yes. I don't know if even people understand that part of building relationships and networking and getting people housing, but yeah. you have to maintain healthy relationships with the landowners and the landlords. Yeah, because we want them to eventually move out of those units and then they those units become available for the rest of our clients. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to be like Section 8 where most black families, you get this voucher and then you're comfortable with how much money you make and then you never grow and you stay there because you are so afraid of having to pay rent here. Or like having to pay rent or sustain yourself in Los Angeles. So you're going to do everything you can to hold on to that voucher Mm -hmm. so that you know housing is always guaranteed for you. And I get it. So my thoughts are, can we teach people how to make money, get higher paying positions, and where that isn't a fear for them, like they always have something to fall back on. And I'm glad you brought that up because that was my next question. The fact that I went to your website and mm-hmm. I saw that you do more than just housing. Yes. And I wanted to know why that was important because you also incorporate employment services, youth mentorship services, mm-hmm. community outreach and food distribution services. So, you know, how did this come about? How did you even think to even incorporate some of that? You kind of answered that, but I'm yeah. curious to know more. Um. I just noticed because when I opened my first home, we weren't um, we weren't doing case management. That wasn't a thing. And then I saw how many people in the homes needed help or when they wouldn't have their resident fees. They're like, well, I didn't have money and I had to pay this. OK, now we need to sit down, do a budget together. So let's see where your money's going. Are you outliving your means or do you need to save more? So I found myself doing case management services already. And then I made it more structured where now this is a requirement to be a part of Noah's Foundation. You have to adhere to case management because I will be a disservice to you if I housed you and expected you to have all the answers. Mm. Otherwise, if you had all the answers, you probably wouldn't be in transitional housing. Right. And I think that's where... The disconnect is, is making sure that we are putting people in positions to take care of themselves long term. Right. So, so, so basically you saw, I want to put you in a position to win. Yes. Because it's not, it's not a win. Otherwise you'll keep coming back. Right. And also I think, and I think that's a really good point because I think sometimes when people go to help, mm-hmm. they think, oh, well, I, I set you up to help. You should, you should just be out there winning now yeah. without even considering, well, wait a minute. I got in this position because of you know, maybe I didn't have access to resources. I didn't know how to get those resources. Mm -hmm. And you're just throwing me out here saying, well, I did this one thing for you. You should be good now. When, hey, wait a minute. I still need some help. Yeah, because we're not learning this stuff in school. (laughs) Right. I had, I went to Crenshaw High School and I remember, and I love Crenshaw. So I don't think this is a Crenshaw problem. I think this is a systemic problem. Yes. And I had, out of my four years, one life skills class. 
it half was a, a semester. semester. Yes. <laughs> I know exactly. It was half a semester. Yes. So for that one year, you did a health class where I think we were assigned a baby that fake cried and he had to go home and change his diapers. Was, okay, so we got it. Don't become a teen parent. Great. And then, <laughs> you know, the second semester was life skills. And I never remember talking about banking, life insurance, budgeting your money. I think life skills was like, what do you want to do after college? Like more career guidance and like vocational training and that stuff, but not really telling me how am I going to make it in the real world? Right. It's funny. I had that class. I think it was life skills slash educational career planning. Yep. They taught me how to write a check. And it's 2023. I barely even know where a checkbook is because I don't need it. Right. Oh, yeah, I never used a checkbook. Yeah. <laughs> but I never learned. Like you said, I didn't really learn budgeting. I didn't even really know what that was. I didn't even know how to really pay a bill. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't really learn those things. I think for most part, from I went to manual arts high school and I don't, I didn't even have a baby that cried. I think we just kind of goofed off. It was yeah. half a semester. It was a teacher was, you know, older lady who was kind of ready to retire got my name wrong every day she called me shaven um (laughs) and it was just it was just kind of a a waste of time class Mm -hmm. that you just kind of you know i didn't learn anything i think that's a really good point that we're not really taught the skills um of even how to look for a job what does that even entail and i think that's a really important point and i think it's really dope that you've decided that you realize that there were other needs that needed to be met yes not just housing and we had another guest come on from the right way foundation another cda the right way yes i I figured you might Mm -hmm. um he was a guest franco vega he was um talking about something similar he was another cd8 community grantee uh, community grant recipient and he said something similar. They were working on, um, I think, employment services initially. Then they realized they needed housing. Yes. <laughs> Transitional age youth also needed housing and needed other support services. And trauma, such as trauma-informed care and all these, and therapy. And they was like, we can't set these young people up to fail by just getting them a job. Then they can't keep the job because they have all this trauma that yeah. went unaddressed and they don't have a place to live. So I think it's the same thing that you're saying. Like, okay, yeah, I realize housing is important, but then there's all these other needs. I'm also curious to know how you got into youth mentorship services. Um, youth mentorship services was important because, again, not having that type of guidance in high school made me say another way to combating homelessness is why are we waiting until they are homeless? Mm -hmm. So in addition to prevention services where we are like paying people's rent before an eviction, we need to go back further. You know, we need to go back to like, what are we learning in school? Right. So our mentorship program is a lead and it's an acronym for leaders exploring and developing because we want to also teach them those same things that we've um, gained to also become pillars in their community. So making sure that they receive the same knowledge and that way they can come out of high school more prepared for the real world and then also being able to mentor other youth and if we can just keep the cycle going that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so making sure like we're really getting into schools and talking about what the real world is like, you know, what does that time frame look like? The hardest uh, transition in life to me was from teenager to adulthood. Mm-hmm. Nothing else in life was as difficult as that. Even graduating from college and it's like 
I've had college students come to me for year degrees and they're like, okay, now what do I do? Because even still then you are not prepared to get your own apartment, pay your own bills, get renter's insurance and stuff. So it was really taking a step back to say, this is one of those things that we need to do if we really want to combat homelessness, especially in Los Angeles. So that's a really good point because if your families don't prepare you for that, because mm-hmm. I know much like you, I was, my dad had me out at 18. He was like, it's your 18 time to be out. You're lucky I let you stay this long. It's pretty that, much how his, his attitude was. Horrible. You know, and it was very smart. I didn't really know anything. It wasn't for the fact that I had a roommate whose parents did prepare her and she had to teach me. I wouldn't have known really anything. And I think it's important that we do teach our youth so they're not just out here. And I'm glad that you have services Mm -hmm. and programs that's like, hey, this is what this is what you have to be ready for. Yes. You know, because guess what? LADWP does not care that your parents are not preparing you. Right. <laughs> they're not right. They're not checking on that. Right. And I know our parents did the best that they could. Oh, absolutely. So for, this isn't a blame for yeah, them. Yeah. Because I think I went through a, a period of time where, like, I blamed my parents. Like, this is why I went through this. Like, it was you guys' fault. I went through a phase where I felt that way. And once I became a parent, because I don't always have the best approach with Noah. But, see, this generation is so different. I don't remember, like, being a child, being able to correct my parents. Mm-hmm. That wasn't okay, especially in black families. Mm-hmm. And then in, in this day and age, it's like, no, kids are speaking up for themselves. You know, our generation, we're more tapped in into, like, our mental health. And if I say something, Noah will tell me, Mommy, that hurt my feelings. Or, mm-hmm. Mommy, that wasn't the best approach. So I'm just thinking about it that way of saying that the way our parents handled things was because their parents handled that way. And it just kept going and kept going and kept going. And I think now we're more woke, what we would say. Well, we had to learn, we had to yeah. learn to create space for our children yeah. to speak up. And I, it's funny cause I was listening to another podcast, a parenting podcast. And this is what the, the mothers were saying, you know, I wanted liberated children. I wasn't prepared for them to check me, but, <laughs> but, yeah. it, but that came with it. And it was important though, because like you said, it's important that we give that space for children to speak up. Mm-hmm. And it's also, and it's important for us because um, even all adults, not just our parents, because I don't have to say, I don't have children. I take care of children, but I don't have children. But in taking care of children, I realized that I had to learn how to also check myself mm-hmm. and say, okay, look, am I always right? No. But I also understand that I'm in a position to also guide. Yes. And I think that's the important thing about mentorship. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a two-way street, right? It's like I'm learning. And the same thing Franco also said. You know, it's we're also learning. Yeah. They're learning. We're learning. And that mentorship piece is super important when we talk about growth. Right. It's important when we're talking about right. helping young people be empowered to move forward, to be empowered to be successful. Mm-hmm. And so we can prevent them from falling into the traps of yeah. homelessness or um, despair and poverty, right? And I, I really hope that happens because I am so worried for our youth. <laughs> I know. I clearly you, the fact that you were able to include that in housing services, yeah, really, that's pretty. That's pretty dope because it's still a thing. You know, we have now again. Now we're speaking up, so I think more parents are now recognizing like. Okay, kicking our children out, that didn't that didn't work. We have to do a different approach. Mm-hmm. But it's also still happening. Yes. You know, and that part is only like the at home part. We still need to get in schools and really talk to our children about what they want to do with their lives because the way student loans are going, college and I've made my mind up about that. I will hope my son goes to get his education, but I've all are having my mind already that college might not be what he wants to do. Like, I think entrepreneurship is everything right now. You know, Noah might want to have a trade. Noah might want to start a business. 
long as you have a plan, <laughs> right? You know, whatever that plan is, you know, we'll support it and we'll go through it together. But that first plan might not be right, and I'm not going to kick my son out because this is what you thought you were going to do, and then it didn't work out. Nope. Okay, so now we're on step two. Like we're just going to keep going. We're going to figure it out that way. I am 32 years young, and I'm just now figuring out. Okay, homeless services is probably what I want to do the rest of my life. So just imagine if I was able or had a comfortable space to skip homelessness where I can go through these different phases, just trying to figure out what I liked and stuff, because I wasn't a bad kid. I wasn't on the streets. I wasn't smoking weed. I wasn't pregnant, you know, so I didn't understand why I had to get out. I'm going to be real. I don't even believe in the concept of bad children. Yeah. I believe that there, I I took a training once in this uh, psychologist, older, older black guy. He said, there's no such thing as bad children, only children whose needs haven't been met yet. Hmm. And I've always had that in my heart. So even the children that we see out in the streets, these are children whose needs haven't been met yet. We haven't figured out what they were. We assume right. what they are, but they maybe they haven't figured out how to get those needs met. And a lot of times these are kids whose families haven't figured out how to meet their needs. And sometimes these are kids who are also homeless. Their families are homeless. And we don't think about that, too. Oh, that's, that's such a big thing. It's such now a, that I'm in this field, do you know how many homeless families I have? Oh, I have no I'm not, I have I wouldn't a family be of eight who were sleeping in their van. Mm-hmm. And sometimes every now and then would get a, a motel and stay there. And mom was pregnant when I took them. Wow. See, and this happens a lot. And I'm sure like when I was in high school, we had and I had friends. They wouldn't tell us. We would find out. We'd figure it out. Or, you know, eventually it's hard to it's hard to miss when your friends are, you know, basically bathing in the sink early in the morning at school. Yeah. Right. And we don't. And that, I, that's not that's another thing. Sometimes we don't we assume people aren't homeless because even if they're you know, they're dressed like how you and I are dressed right now. We just assume they aren't homeless. Um, yeah. And because I've had friends and I found out later, I, I myself have dealt with homelessness. I was couch surfing, which I think only until recently is considered homeless now. I think at one point I wasn't even considered being homeless if you were couch right. surfing. Um, yeah, now, now, now it couch is. Couch surfing. Before it is. wasn't. When I was when I was couch surfing, that didn't qualify as being homeless. I didn't qualify for programs because I was because they considered it having a place to sleep. So I was like, but I'm, I don't have a steady place to sleep. I may or may not be able to sleep in that place the next same day and the same, um, that next night, Mm -hmm. but it didn't count as homelessness. The same thing. Um, I found out people just don't know. There are people who sleep in their car. They they have a gym membership. So they take a shower. I was just about to say that. At the gym. And I have friends who did that. And it's very common, you know, put on their suit, went to work, had a full-time job. Yep. But had a suitcase have a in the trunk. Yeah, have a storage space. Um, my friend's stepdad would sleep in a storage space. She would have her visitations on the weekend, and they would go to a storage space. That was her visitation with her dad. Wow. Because that's where he slept. He wasn't supposed to, but that's what they did, right? But people don't know all the time what homelessness looks like. And I think it's really interesting how we have these perceptions, like how you said earlier, that you had to learn how to humanize even the concept of what that was. Yes. Um, and I'm really gra- I'm really glad you did the work. I know you said you're 32 years young. I mean, you started this when you were 29. Yes. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, and I was I started this work when I was still healing myself. <laughs> I mean, sometimes that's the best way to heal. Yeah. Is to help. And you hit the ground running. I did. And you applied for one of our grants. Yeah. Our reimagined funds uh, went to some of our reimagined funds went to your organization. Mm-hmm. We were one of our Council District Eight uh, community grant recipients. And I'm curious to know how has that fund? How have those funds helped your organization? I think you got fifty thousand oh, yes. dollars. We did. Um, it's helped tremendously because with the housing sites, sometimes things need to be replaced, or sometimes we don't have things, or 
and we don't have funds for them. You know, we have funds. Grants are always re- like restrictive where if what you can use your funds are what you can't do. So with those funds, we were able to like bridge those gaps of those different things we were missing, like dining tables, furniture, residents who didn't have lamps or things in their rooms or um, just like the different necessities across the, the properties. Learning that security systems are very important in keeping all these people safe. So mm-hmm. investing in security systems and a camera system where now we have more eyes on our property because we don't have the funds to hire a security guard to watch the property 24-7. So getting more creative with that and, and funds with those. That really, <laughs> really helps because whew, I did not know as a business owner that things are expensive. I have never paid a water bill in my life. And boy, was this very humbling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wow, water costs that much, you know, because yeah. I've always stayed in an apartment and, you know, a lot of those things are covered. So it definitely helped, um, I would say, making these houses more home um, for our residents because we don't have a time limit. So that's one of the questions people often ask me is how long can residents stay? Well, I've had one person come to me who was sleeping in the streets for three years and they stayed with me for three months and they, that was their green light. And then I've also had some that I've had for two years and just haven't quite got a grip on the things that they need to to get out. So Mm -hmm. we don't have a time limit because all of our transitions can look very, very different. I love that approach. Yeah. But as long as you are working. So if you are um, you have to for our program, you have to be employed or employable. So I don't care if you don't have a job or if you don't have money, you have to be willing to get one and get some. And then if you are a two-parent household, one adult has to be working at least part-time um, because can't do it with two, unfortunately. I wish we could just give everybody free housing and kind of figure it out, but we can't. So those are the main things or the main criteria that we have for our residents, and we see a bigger impact that way. Yeah, and it also helps them to get on their feet. Right. Yes. It helps them so that way they can feel empowered. It's important people feel mm-hmm. empowered to be able to you know no, to no even no longer need the services. Right? And I pride myself on the nice houses we provide because I have seen some transitional housing programs and the word transitional housing already has like a negative connotation to it. So I think people think like transitional housing is like four beds in a room, all these people like jailhouse style. Like I that's what I or a hostel, is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. And that's not what our homes look like. Our homes are very dignifying spaces. And I always told people when I wanted to start Nose Foundation, like my goal is to not only house and treat people, um, but to make sure that I'm treating them and housing them in the same conditions that I wanted to be treated in. And I like nice things, you know, and I want to make sure that in our homes we have those nice things, too. That is still a dignifying experience while you're experiencing homelessness. So we have nice refrigerators. We have nice furniture. We have nice dining tables. Like, so that you do feel at home when you're surviving in the world. You can come home, come home with your kids. And usually the kids love it. They walk in, especially if they've been like staying in a hotel or in a car. And I can be on a tour with a family. And before I can even get the door open all the way, the kids are like flying in. Like, oh my God, are we going to live here? And then that is the part that I love. I can only imagine how exciting that is for you to witness. It is. And then we get like a ton of donations. Um, We only accept like new or new items. I wouldn't even say gently used because sometimes people don't always give in the same way that they want to receive. So with that, once a family moves in, they can go through like our pantry, our donation center and take all the clothes and shoes that they need. And we have welcome home kits with real soap. And when I say real soap, I mean like probably some of the things that you and I want to use. Dove, caress, you know, not 
the things that we have to buy that we have to stretch a long way. So on that note, how can people support or get involved with the work that you're doing? Um, that's such a good question because <laughs> I'm like, we need so much. So where so how do you can start? Pe- yeah. So how can people even, if they just want to hit you up and say, hey, what do you need? How can they do that? Yes. Info at Noah's Foundation, Inc. Org. Um, Because we always, always, always need help. And sometimes it's not like monetary donations that are helpful. It's the support, like the people, you know, having someone come out and sort our donations, having people a part of our community outreach, our food distribution or our skid row initiative or um, if you are an employer or you're connected to employers who, you know, are hiring and probably can bring in some of our participants. If you can teach a workshop, like there's a list of things that people can do. You can email us and say, hey, I know how to paint. OK, great. Can you teach a painting class? Can we you know, <laughs> it's just anything. I would say if you want to be involved with homeless services, definitely reach out to us. Got you. Well, let me just say. As a person who's also from South Central Los Angeles, we are so proud of you. Thank you. To go from being unhoused with a newborn to creating new opportunity and hope Mm -hmm. for the rest of us, we are just so proud of you. And thank Thank you for the work that you're doing. And I'm just, I'm floored by the fact that with just within three years, you've done so much. And I'm still shocked that today's our birthday and I'm here. <laughs> and happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much again. And I look forward to seeing everything that you're going to be doing in the future. And just, wow. I, I can't even put into words how amazing you are. Thank you. And I know the families are also very grateful for the work that you're doing and the young people that get to finally be in a nice space like you said dignifying space Mm -hmm. and also get the services to see their family their parents getting employed they're getting mentoring services the things that they need to feel to have a healthy sustainable life and be able to move forward in the future so yes absolutely thank you thank you so much for having me Thank you for listening to MHD Off the Record. And special thank you to Felicia, the poetess Morris of Morris Media Studios in Lamert Park. For more information, please visit MHDCD8.com and follow at MHDCD8 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget to rate us five stars, subscribe, and share with a friend.